Good morning once again. Good to see you all. I know that you have been uh, reading the news, watching it on TV. You know what's going on. And uh, because of all the uh, fear, anxiety, and even panic surrounding the coronavirus outbreak, um, I prayed about it Saturday and felt like the Lord was telling me to present a special message this morning. And uh, as I said in the email I sent out to the church last Thursday, uh, I would never want to minimize the severity of this pandemic. But I know the Lord doesn't want us to panic either. And um, one of the columnists that I read, a Christian lady named Patrice Lewis, uh, she shares, shares that sentiment and uh, wrote in an article two days ago, she said, and I quote, uh, it's been a crazy week, hasn't it? On Monday, the stock market tanked. On Tuesday, Italy shut down. On Wednesday, Seattle closed its schools. On Thursday, Denmark locked down. By Friday, it seemed most of our country was in an advanced state of panic. Hysteria is sweeping the globe, and it's ridiculous. A typical example, last week, the governor of Hawaii declared a state of medical emergency, even though there had not been one case of the coronavirus there. He recommended that everyone have a two-week supply of food. There was pandemonium in the supermarkets. She said, what on earth is causing such panic over COVID-19? Why can't people put things in perspective, end quote? Why? Well, for two main reasons. First of all, they lack the critical information needed that would help them to put things in perspective. Information uh, the news media is keeping from them in their effort to stoke fear for ratings and to promote their own political agenda, which is to remove Donald Trump from office at any cost. And then number two, most Americans don't have the kind of relationship with God that allows them to trust him in a crisis like this where they don't panic, but instead let his supernatural peace guard their hearts and minds. Look at those two things. Um, first of all, putting things in perspective, okay? Uh, on Wednesday, March 1st, the World Health Organization, the WHO, announced that the COVID-19 virus was now officially a pandemic, the first pandemic since the H1N1 swine flu of 2009 and 2010. In case you're wondering, the word pandemic comes from the Greek words pan, meaning all, and then demos, meaning people. And so a pandemic is where a disease spreads across a large ge geographical area and affects many people. Now that's uh, uh, in contrast to an epidemic, which is uh, when a disease is limited to one city, uh, region, or country. A pandemic is when a disease or infection becomes widespread in several countries at the same time, even to the point of sometimes going global. How does COVID-19 compare with other pandemics in history? Again, we're looking at perspective now, all right? Of course, I'm not going to run down all the pandemics in history. I'll give you a few of the more common ones. How about, first of all, the Black Death, also known as the Great Bubonic Plague, or less commonly known as the Black Plague. This pandemic was estimated to have killed, if you can believe this, 30 to 60% of Europe's population uh, from the years 1347 to 1351. 
resulting in the deaths, and they didn't keep great records back then, so we're not quite sure, but uh, experts believe that during this pandemic, anywhere from 75 to 200 million people died. How about the Spanish flu of 1918? This pandemic, according to the CDC, was the deadliest of the 20th century. One author uh, wrote, and I quote, the horrific scale of the, of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic is hard to fathom. The CDC estimates that about 500 million people, or one-third of the Earth's population, became infected with this virus. It ultimately caused at least 50 million deaths worldwide and about 675,000 deaths in America. The Hong Kong flu of 1968, and I had a gentleman come up after first service and thank me for mentioning this one, his brother died in this pandemic. Good, healthy, strong, six foot four guy, 37 years old. But this pandemic originated in China in July of 1968. It was caused by an influenza A virus, the uh, H3N2. It was the third pandemic flu outbreak to occur in the 20th century, killing roughly 1 million people worldwide and about 100,000 in America. And then more, recent, more recently, most of us remember the swine flu of 2009 and 2010. This flu pandemic was caused by a novel influenza virus, the H1N1, and uh, not previously detected in either animals or humans, per the CDC, is what they say. One account reported that the virus was actually first detected in the U.S. and spread quickly across the United States and the world, according to the uh, CDC, between April 12th of 2009 and April 10th of 2010, there were roughly 60.8 million people that were infected worldwide with this uh, virus, and uh, uh, causing an estimated uh, 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 causing oh, excuse me, uh, 274,304 in the United States, uh, leading up to 12,000, roughly 12,500 deaths from this virus. The CDC also estimated that worldwide, roughly 575,400 people died from that pandemic. There are others. I just wanted to pick out some of the more uh, recent ones, or bubonic, we've all heard of that one, and that was the deadliest in human history. Uh, but how do all these stack up, or, or how does the coronavirus, or the COVID-19 virus of today, uh, 2020, you know, compared to those, all right? Well, as of Friday, March 13th, so last Friday, there had been 137,000 reported cases worldwide of this new strain of coronavirus resulting in 5,065 deaths. And that number is creeping up, okay? We hope it levels off quickly and that's it. But, uh, you know, when you compare... 137,000 people worldwide that have contracted this virus compared to others of you know, millions and millions, 500 million, uh, one of those and all. Um, it's amazing. And when you really think about how that 85%, excuse me, 80% of the cases um, of people being infected were uh, in China, where the virus originated, and to put that in perspective, uh, China has a population of roughly 1.5 billion people. In comparison, the CDC said that during the 2018-2019 flu season, 
there were 35 million cases of people in the United States that contracted the flu and the 40, uh, 34,000 deaths that resulted. That was the flu, all right? I don't see us closing down buildings and schools for flu season. And flu is much more deadly. Uh, at least it has been up to this point. Things could change. We pray it doesn't. Uh, 35 million cases in, of the flu in just the United States, resulting in 34,000 deaths. In fact, from October 2019 through February 22nd of 2020, the U.S. has had 45 million cases of the flu with 46,000 deaths. Again, we're talking perspective now. The death rate for the coronavirus is as follows. From the ages of 10 to 49, it's 0.2%, which means that of those who contract this disease, 99.8% survive. Ages, ages 50 to 59, uh, mortality rate is 1.3%. Ages 60 to 69, 3.6. Ages 70 to 79 is roughly 8.0. And then ages 80 to 89 is as high as 15% that contract this disease are going to die from it. So guys, at this moment, the severity of this pandemic, and let me just say this, I heard a doctor on the radio say the other day, when people hear the word pandemic, they associate that with death. Uh, uh, when somebody, when the, when the uh, World Health Organization declares something a pandemic, it's not saying that it, it's more deadly than uh, anything else. It just means that it's more widespread, more widespread. But uh, at this moment, the severity of this pandemic, COVID-19, when compared with others in history, remain, remains relatively low. Now listen, don't get me wrong. Uh, any deaths are too many. But again, let's put this in perspective and not panic. Um, most people that get this disease, if they are young and relatively healthy, often have minor symptoms. If any, they're asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms. It is the elderly that you know, have more <coughs> severe symptoms and are a greater risk of dying. But it is definitely not a death sentence if you contract it. Okay, by any means. Um, which brings me to the second thing I'd like to talk about, and that is, you know, how we need to, tr as Christians now, how we need to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not fear. Not fear. Guys, fear is a tool of the devil, not of God. God said very clearly in his word that he doesn't give a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Fear is a very powerful weapon the enemy tries to use against the people of God, basically to shut us down, shut us down. Someone has said, and I quote, fear is the most crippling human emotion. It paralyzes soldiers in the midst of battle and keeps Christians from sharing the life-saving message of the gospel with those who are lost, end quote. Now, in the scriptures, guys, there are places that admonish us to fear some things and even extol fear as a virtue. One place that comes to mind is in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the, It's a good thing to fear the Lord. Well, what does that mean now? Well, back in Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. All right? God said in Isaiah 66, verse 2, he said, I will look upon him, her, who is humble 
and who trembles at my word, or who fears disobeying me. So some fear is good. In contrast, though, there are over 300 places in the Bible where we are commanded by God as his people not to fear certain things. We are not to fear man. Fear of man brings a snare. We are not to fear crises. God's in the throne. We are not to fear the uncertainty of the future because we know the one who holds the future in his hands. I mean, fear robs us of our peace and our joyous Christians. You know why? Because it robs us of our faith. Our faith. What causes us to fear? Well, there's different reasons. Let me just give you the most basic reason why we become afraid. We become fearful when we lose, listen, the awareness of God's presence in our lives. And therefore, guys, the antidote, if I can put it that way, for the poison of fear is to remember that God is with us as his people. God is with us. Didn't the writer to the Hebrews quote this from the Old Testament where God said, Hebrews 13, verse 5, the Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we believe that, um, but often we forget it. When we're facing a crisis or something very frightening, adversity, we would just stop for a second to remind ourselves God's with us. Okay? God's with us. I love Isaiah 41, verse 10, and I'll add verse 13 to it. For God said to his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hands, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. And so, simply put, the cure for fear is faith. Putting our trust in the Lord. I love how the psalmist just stated this so simply and succinctly. Psalm 56, 11, I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? I trust in God. You know, why should I be afraid? Psalm 56, verse 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. So even believers become afraid. We need to remind ourselves he's with us, and we need to put our trust in him in the circumstance. Guys, fear and faith, fear and faith are mutually exclusive. In other words, you can't walk in faith while at the same time live in fear. No matter what the circumstance, we have to remember that. They're mutually exclusive. If you're walking in faith, you won't be afraid. If you're afraid, you're not walking in faith. And this goes for any circumstance. You know, the Bible talks about general circumstances, you know, that may affect the world in general. I'll give you one of those. The psalmist said in Psalm 43, verses 1 and Psalm 46, verses 1 and 3, or 1 to 3, God is our refuge and strength always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea, even though the oceans roar and foam and mountains tremble as the waters surge. I don't even care if the whole planet goes nuts. My God's on the throne. Earthquakes and mountains 
crashing into the sea? I mean, my God made it all. He's on the throne, right? How about when we go through personal crises? Well, that, you know, general, sure, but what about things that affect my life personally? I love Habakkuk, right? And I had the first service turn to it. I'm not going to make that mistake again because nobody could find it. So I've, you know, and I'm hearing the gold leafing peeling for the first time. Okay, we're not going to even go there. I'll just read it to you, okay? Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. Habakkuk presents a pretty bleak picture, and he's still not fearing, okay? Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive tree may not fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, though there is no toilet paper and water left at Walmart. I know, that's what my Bible says. That you... right. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Look, in, those, in, in the days ahead, our faith might be tested in ways we never expected a few weeks ago and maybe not even ready for yet. If not from this crisis, then possibly from something else coming down the road. The devil may try to come at us, quote-unquote, like a flood, as the Bible says. What does that mean? Come at us with so many pressing things and worrisome things and, and a, such a crisis that we are overwhelmed in the hopes that we begin to fear. That's what he does. He comes at us with like a wave, like a flood, uh, so much so that we, he wants us to fear and to have uncertainty about the future. Jesus even said that prior to his return, Luke 21, verse 26, people's hearts would be failing them for, from fear of those things coming upon the earth. Now, that was spoken directly to the tribulation generation, but it applies to us. Well, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in difficult or even frightening Situations. I know we're not supposed to, we're not to fear. So what do we do? Let me give you six things quickly, all right? Things that don't apply just to this situation, obviously, but to any adversity, crisis, problem, okay? Um, just six things quickly that I'll share with you. And these are not profound in any way. They're very basic. Peter said, though, sometimes we need to be put in remembrance of what we already know, okay? What do we do? when adversity comes and we're facing maybe a situation like this well first of all we remember that god is still on the throne Amen. he is sovereign he is sovereign the first thing we always do in the face of any difficult or frightening circumstance is to remind us is to remind ourselves that god is in control of every situation every situation and therefore what are we worried about now, i got too many scriptures to have you turn to all these. I'll have you turn to a couple. But uh, write them down. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, here's the thing. The psalmist would often encourage himself, talk to himself, to encourage himself. It's okay, right? If you're talking to yourself and then and arguing with yourself, that's a problem. It's called being beside yourself. 
Like you're walking next to yourself and you're arguing with yourself. That, that's a problem, okay? If you're just encouraging yourself according to what God has said in his word, that's okay. And the psalmist was going through something. He was pretty troubled. And he said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Don't you hope in God? For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. You know, I mean, when I'm facing a terrible problem, I can go on being fearful, depressed, discouraged, and ultimately defeated. Or I can say to myself, as the psalmist said in Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3, what's wrong with you? I'm talking to myself now. I'm harder on myself than you guys, okay? I, I, I call myself dummy a lot. You know, dummy, what are you worried about, okay? What's wrong with you? God's still on the throne. He is with me in this circumstance. He will see me through this. I'm, gonna, I'm going to hope in him, and he will deliver me and once again put a new song of praise in my heart. In other words, this too shall what? Pass. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm so thankful David didn't say, didn't say though I walk in and fall down and collapse in the valley of death. No, I'm walking through it. He's with me, right? That's the first thing. Always remember, God is on the throne and he's almighty. Nothing is hard for him. Nothing is impossible with our God. Number two, take some time to quiet your heart in God's presence. The world takes refuge in pills and in alcohol, but we in the Lord our God. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, verse 14, wait on the Lord. And it means to stop activity. Stop running around like a crazy person trying to work everything out. Sometimes we just need to stand still as God said and know I'm God. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I love Isaiah 30 verse 15. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Where do we draw our strength from? In the presence of God. Just quietly in his presence and being confident that he's with us and uh, he's got the situation under control. You know, when you're facing terrible news, don't panic or rely on your own strength. Spend some time in his presence and let him calm and strengthen you. Number three, take refuge in his word and cling to his promises. Now, when Joshua had been called by God to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, and of course, as the general, he was to lead them in battle against some pretty formidable enemies, giants, literally. Big responsibility. And um, Joshua was a little nervous. You know, he's, he was a human being. Um, he was a great man of God, but he was nervous. And uh, God knew it. God tried to comfort him. And here's what God said, Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, Joshua, this book of the law, that's a way of saying my word, the word of God. Joshua, my word shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. 
For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? I'm commanding you to be strong and of good courage. Okay, Lord, I want to obey your commands. How do I do that? Meditate on my word. All right, meditate on my word. Remember what I've told you. Remember the promises I've given you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We're not in this alone. I think it was Martin Luther who said, one plus God is a majority. If God be for us, what? Who could be against us? And of course, it was rhetorical. No one, of course. No one. I'll have you turn to Psalm 34 for a second. Psalm 34, verse 17. Psalmist said, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now, let me just say this. It should come as no surprise to us when we go through adversities. The people of God have faced many challenges, famines and pestilences and various other uh, enemies coming upon them. Somehow we think that we as the, the people of God should be exempt from adversities. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. But not always in the way we would like. Not always that where everything works out the way we want it to. Guys, this is a great opportunity, okay? In fact, it was Henry Ford, I think, who said, um, somebody, I think it was Ford, who said during the Great Depression, uh, he said, many see this as a, he's talking from a business standpoint, okay? He's a businessman. Many see this as a great tragedy. I see it as a great opportunity. And, of course, he used it his advantage made a lot of money off it well we don't think that way as christians really so this situation though many think of it as a tragedy and even christians are becoming fearful that's wrong we have to see this as a great opportunity do you realize that you pray for souls we pray for souls all the time to get saved do you know that most people won't even you know give god a second thought while things are going well it's not until adversity comes a plague hits our country uh, you know, adversity strikes. I mean, after 9-11, even our leaders were on the steps of the Capitol singing, you know, God bless America or Kumbaya or something, you know. <laughs> even heathens get kind of religious uh, in a foxhole, don't they? But the idea is this could be one of the greatest opportunities to reach people for Christ we've had in a long time. Don't waste it. Don't miss the opportunity because people are scared and when they're scared they're open and that's where we come in but not if we're scared not if we're cowering in the corner like they are may god give us grace to go out there with confidence in quietness and confidence is my strength god's on the throne if somebody has said the man or woman who kneels before god can stand up to anything but we have to get in his presence we have to, to know he's with us and then give us grace to go out there with calmness and peace. 
where the world is freaking out and they're going, how come you're so calm? Why should I worry? My God's on the throne. Let me tell you about him. He can give you peace too in the midst of this if you just give your heart to Jesus. Wow, right? The way God's people have handled adversity throughout the course of history has brought untold millions of people to Jesus. I was telling first service about a family, the Stafford family. Mr. Stafford was a businessman, and uh, he had planned to take his uh, family. This is going back, I forgot how many years, but uh, this is when the people traveled by uh, ship quite a bit. And uh, he had planned to take his family from New York on a ship to England for a vacation. And uh, business came up, and he couldn't go with the family. He sent them on ahead. He was going to catch up in a few days. Well, his wife and four daughters were on that ship, and in the middle of the Atlantic, they encountered a great storm. The storm wound up sinking that ship, and his wife and four daughters were lost. They were, they were killed. Mr. Stafford was a great man of God. A few days later, he boarded a ship and asked the captain if he wouldn't mind stopping over the place where his family went down. Captain obliged, good man. He just stood there and he just, you know, quietly observed. And then went back to his cabin and wrote a hymn. You know it. It is well with my soul. That hymn has probably helped more people to come to Christ than many other hymns. Because Mr. Stafford was saying, my heart is broken, but my faith has never been stronger. If my, if my God wanted my family to be with him, they're in glory. They're rejoicing around the throne. And I'm going to just praise him for the time I had with them. It's how we handle adversity. I mean, any unbeliever can handle the good times with grace. And praise God when the sun is shining and everyone's healthy and things are going well. It's when a child of God is going through adversity and they worship God and they praise God in the adversity. That's when the world takes notice. That's when the world sees we're different. Number four, how do you deal with crises, adversity? Well, number four, you spend some time worshiping the Lord. Guys, praise is a manifestation of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And listen, we don't praise God for the circumstance. We praise God in the circumstance. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything, give thanks. Why? Because Romans 8.28 says, Everything is working together for our good. Because we are the called. According, we are children of God called according to his purpose. And he is working everything in our lives for his good. Now that doesn't mean that everything is going to make me happy. Mr. Stafford, I'm sure, didn't want to see his family uh, die on that ship. It just means, though, that as children of God, when we accepted Christ, hopefully we understood, should have, my life now belongs to him. There's going to be a cross involved. Sometimes God is going to lead me through some very difficult times. It's all for his glory. Now, he is working for our eternal good more than our temporal comfort 
And because God loves you and wants to give you the best eternity possible with the most rewards, sometimes he'll sacrifice some earthly comforts to gain you more heavenly rewards. But ultimately, though, it's all about his glory. And again, how we handle adversities, which is a way we let our light shine, right? And so I believe that offering up praise to God in the midst of this terrible circumstance, well, it gets our eyes off the circumstance and onto God. The problem with adversities is, and Satan has really try, encourages Christians to do this, to get their eyes off of God and onto the circumstance. If he can get our eyes off of God and onto the circumstance, then he can get fear to grip our hearts. Remember Peter on the Sea of Galilee? Here's Jesus walking on the water, right? A storm was, you know, it wasn't a, 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 a rainstorm, it was a windstorm. It was that night, though. And the disciples been struggling for hours on the Sea of Galilee, trying to cross to the other side as the Lord had commanded them. Now, they were exhausted. I'm sure they felt all hope was gone. They were struggling about six to eight hours on that sea. And finally, here comes Jesus walking on the water toward them. They thought he was a ghost, first of all, right? And then when they realized it was Jesus, Peter said, well, Lord, let me come out to you on the water. Jesus, come. Initially, Peter was walking on the water, right? But then he took his eyes off of Jesus, looked at the situation he was in, the size of the waves and the, everything going on around him, and he began to sink. At that moment, you know, you don't have time to pray one of these real long, flowery prayers. So Peter just cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and pulled Peter up. Immediately they were in the boat. And Jesus said, Peter, why did you doubt? Did I not tell you to come to me? You're never going to go under. As long as you keep your eyes on me. We have to remember that. So often we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstance. Whatever it might be. We just got bad news from the doctor. We've got a serious disease. Or somebody we love is a serious disease. Or we've just gotten laid off. In this crisis, a lot of people are not going to be able to work. They're not going to be able to earn money. Let's pray for them. If you have a neighbor that could use some groceries, go out and buy it for them. There's a lot of things that get our eyes off of Jesus and where we begin to sink. And when Jesus came walking over to Peter, he reached his arm out, and I'm sure at that moment Peter again, was looking at Jesus, and Jesus picked him up, lifted him out of that situation where he was going under. And he'll do the same for you or anyone here if you'll just keep your eye. If it's okay to cry out, Lord, save me. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm feeling overwhelmed with fear. It's okay that's honest. You, you confess that to him. And I believe he'll come over, reach out his hand, and say, look, remember me? What did he say to those guys? Remember what he said to them? He said, uh, basically, I'll paraphrase. Remember me? The great I am? We forget that. We serve the great I am, God of the universe. So I think that when we are facing a terrible circumstance, when we praise God, it, it gets us refocused on him. Our eyes are connected to him now. It's, we're looking at him. That honors him. And also it allows his peace to fill our hearts. Faith, guys, is an umbilical cord. Is the umbilical cord that connects us to God and allows his power, everything that belongs to him, to flow into our lives. Why did you fear? Where was your 
Why did you not have any faith, he said to the guys. Praising God has a way of, you know, just getting us refocused on the Lord. I know some people would say, but what if I don't feel like praising God in the midst of a terrible circumstance? Do you have to feel like doing everything? Why can't we do things out of pure obedience? Why do we have to, quote, unquote, always feel like it? Hey, that's what the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15. It's what the Bible calls the sacrifice of praise. Sometimes we don't feel like praising God. I just came home from the doctor. I got a serious, I have cancer. I don't feel like praising God, but I'm going to because he's with me. And he has told me in all things, give thanks. And I've got it under control. And that's like, all I have is my faith. So I better work on strengthening that, which means get my eyes on Jesus, start praising God, and give it all to him. I've been encouraged many times, strengthened many times in my ministry. When facing difficult circumstances, by taking time to get alone with God and putting on some worship music and praising him. Listen, praising him for who he is and praising him for what he's, listen, going to do based on his promises. Even before he does anything. When you praise God for what he's promised he's going to do, even before you see any of it happening, that honors him. That's a manifestation of faith. And again, faith is essential if God's power is going to flow into our lives and help us in our time of need. Number five, what do you do? You pray. You pray. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. I don't even know how you turn to it. You probably have it memorized. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You pray. Prayer is simply talking to your Father. Bring it to Him. Talk to Him. So often when adversity strikes, we spend most of our time worrying about how we're going to fix it. Okay? Instead of asking God what He wants us to do. One of my favorite verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you all know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't depend on your own understanding of the situation. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. You know, when I got the, you know, when I got the uh, email that they were closing the building down here for at least a couple weeks, maybe longer, I went into that fix-it mode. You been there? My, my, my mind instantly shifted into a, all right, what do I got to do to fix this? Uh, I could go around looking for buildings that we can maybe meet temporarily. I could do this. I did, you know, and I'm in that fix-it mode. And the Lord stopped me. He said, uh, remember me? Did you think I've allowed this maybe for a purpose I have in mind? Oh, yeah, Lord, I forgot about you. I'm sorry. All right, what do you want to do, Lord? And I ask you to pray about that with me uh, this week. God often uses adversity to redirect us, not only as individuals, but as a church. What is God doing? Is he using this to redirect us into a permanent building for, that we could use all week long? I don't know. It's 
proven to me, I don't want to be at the mercy of a board of people that own the building and they can just shut us down whenever they want. So let's pray about that, okay? And finally, number six, and again, these are for any situation, all right? But when you pray, you ask God for guidance. When he reveals something to your heart or from his word, listen, obey God completely with all your heart in all he tells you to do. Whatever that is for the given situation, all right? I'll let you fill in the blank. I will say this. The very first thing he would tell any of us to do is do not fear. Do not fear. Aren't you glad you know Jesus? Aren't you glad you know Jesus? I mean, my pastor used to say, I understand. I, I understand why people, why people commit suicide. I don't agree with it. I understand it. Because sometimes people get to a point where the drugs aren't helping, the booze isn't helping. They're, they're so, you know, frightened and feeling so depressed and empty and hopeless and helpless, they feel they don't have any other way to go but to just take their own life. I sympathize. I don't agree with it. I sympathize. But as Christians, we always have a way to go, and that's to our Father in heaven. We always have somebody to turn to. Hebrews 4, God says, you come to my throne boldly. Don't you be timid. You're my child. And my kids have access to me whenever they want. You come boldly to receive help and grace, in, to receive uh, grace to help in time of need. What peace there is from knowing that our future is secure as children of God. And that we don't need to fear what's coming. We don't need to fear what's here or what's coming. Not even if it's death. Yesterday, my wife got a text from a very dear pastor's wife that she knows real well. And it was uh, about Charles Spurgeon. It was a quote. Now, Charles Spurgeon, during his ministry, dealt with uh, many other clergy in uh, England, dealt with uh, a great cholera outbreak. Many people were dying, and um, many were afraid, terrified. Here's what Spurgeon wrote about, in the midst of that situation, here's what he wrote. He said, fear to die? <laughs> Thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it will not. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, Sudden death is sudden glory, end quote. Now, there's a guy who knew the Lord. That challenges me to have that kind of courage and bravery in the face of death because I serve the living God. He has called me to do his work, to be his, his hands, his feet, his arms, to embrace people who are down and out, maybe even sick. And by God's grace, I don't want to put my life before the lives of those that he has called me to minister to. I don't care what it is. We're done. But I just want to read to you a psalm that I think is appropriate and would help all of us to not fear as we focus 
on God's word. Would you please stand and turn to Psalm 91. I'm going to start with verse 1. See if this doesn't wash over your soul and bring comfort. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers. And under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, God said, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. and Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We do take great comfort in it. Lord, we, we take refuge in your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our shield, a strong tower into which the righteous run in times of adversity and are safe. And Lord, we just praise you and thank you. We ask that, Lord, you would protect us that you would surround us with your angels, us and our families, and this entire church. That, Lord, you would direct us through this adversity in maybe a new direction for our body. But also, Lord, that you would protect us from the perilous pestilence that walks about all around us. That, Lord, it would not come near us or our families. That you would protect us, Lord. We thank you for the protection you will give to us. We thank you, Lord, that in whatever is coming our way, that you are with us. And give us grace, Lord, not to get our eyes off of you and under the circumstance. To not let the enemy sow fear in our hearts that will cause us to sink in our walk with you. But that, Lord, you will give us great grace to help in time of need. But all the while, give us grace to keep focusing our attention on you, Lord. That we not look away, but that we are, remain in constant fellowship with you, Lord, in a very deep and close way. So, Lord, we know that we will get through this. This, too, will pass. We thank you, Lord, for what is coming beyond this temporary crisis. And we don't enter a valley, but what you don't plan to raise us even higher to the mountaintop afterward. We thank you. Lord, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. 